Well, good morning, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. I ask you to turn in your Bibles to John 3.16. In 1980, the mood in America was defeated and deflated, much like Nicodemus at the end of his conversation with Jesus in John chapter 3. America was being beat up physically, spiritually, emotionally, and mentally by intense international developments. In November of 1979, the U.S. Embassy in Iran was overrun by radicalized Muslim college students who took 52 Americans uh, who were diplomats and civilians hostage. Add to this the Cold War that America had running with the Soviet Union and President Jimmy Carter's weak national leadership through these trials, and you can understand our nation's hope and joy was extremely low. America needed a spiritual shot to the heart. It needed a moment of national victory. It needed a, an eruption of joy. America needed a miracle. Enter the 1980 Winter Olympic Games in Lake Placid, New York. The Soviet Union ice hockey team had won four consecutive gold medals and had not lost an Olympic ice hockey game for 12 years. By contrast, the American ice hockey team was a bunch of ragtag college kids put together in the summer six months earlier in 1979 by coach Herb Brooks. This looked like a recipe for national disaster further. Would the Soviet Union raise gold medals in victory on American soil, even American ice, during the Cold War? Would their adult men's hockey team crush the American college kids? The two teams met in the semifinal round. The winner would advance to play a gimme game in the gold medal match. At the end of this semifinal round with the Russians, the, at the end of the first period, the game was tied 2-2. Two two. The Soviets scored again in the second period and made the score 3-2 heading into the third. But in the third period, the American kids tied the game at 3-3. And then with 10 minutes to go, Mike Eruzioni, whose last name in Italian means eruption, scored the go-ahead goal, and the hometown crowd erupted with joy. The boys had to hold on to that lead for 10 minutes of frantic Soviet aggression, and when the time on the clock counted down to zero, America heard a second eruption that day as Al Michaels, who was calling the game for ABC Sports, burst out with these six words. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! The American ice hockey victory over the Soviets was phenomenal and glorious, a true miracle on ice. Al Michaels' joyful eruption and six-word summary perfectly captured the American spirit in that incredible moment, February 22nd, 1980. You are in John chapter 3, where the apostle John erupts with joy by perfectly capturing the point of Jesus' confrontation with Nicodemus in a 10-word summary at John 3.16. At John 3.16, we are at the height of spiritual heights, the pinnacle of biblical revelation, the summit of salvation in Scripture. At John 3.16, all believers in Jesus Christ experience the eruption of joy in our own hearts. The spiritual shot to the heart is given, and the greatest spiritual victory captured is in the text by the Apostle John in this thought. The love of God is what I just saw. I just saw, and I just spoke about, and I just recorded the love of God. Steve Lawson says, this is the most beloved text in the entire Bible. James Montgomery Boyce calls John 3.16, everyone's text. Let's share everyone's text. These very extremely familiar words together now, where the Apostle John says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that the one believing in him shall not perish, 
but have eternal life. These are the words of the Apostle John. As is his custom, he inserts his Holy Spirit-directed reflections and contemplations into his gospel where he deems additional detail and clarification are necessary. Such is the case at John 3.16, where Nicodemus should have erupted with joy like John, but instead he missed Jesus' points for weeks and months later. John doesn't want that for his audience. John wants his audience to erupt with joy right now, immediately, at the glory of the gospel according to Jesus in John 3, 1 through 15, in the love of God that has just been presented. Several clues tell us that these are John's words and not Jesus. Among them, Edward Klink says, Jesus does not normally refer to his father as God. In the Greek, it's ha-theos. It also, according to Klink, seems clear that verses 16 through 21 echo again the great themes of the prologue in the words world, light, unique son, and God. It is worth noting that world was used three times in John chapter 1, twice in the prologue itself. And unique son also was used twice in the prologue as well. It is only now, brothers and sisters, only now in verse three or 16 of chapter 3, that both of these words, unique son and world, have been reintroduced to the text by the apostle John himself. These are his words. Edward Klink says, the grammatical construction of verse 16 serves not only to separate verses 16 through 21 from what has come before, but even to facilitate a retrospective analysis and interpretation of what has come before. You see, friends, John 3.16 is a summary. It's a recap. It is a retrospective analysis. It is an interpretation of the events that just happened, that were just recorded. It is an eruption of joy in the heart of the apostle of love, who must declare the love of God in the face of the story of Jesus' evangelistic confrontation with Nicodemus, who is the premier salvation authority in Israel. At age 80, the apostle John is reflecting on the confrontation that Jesus had with the pride-filled spiritual authority in Israel, who himself was not saved. Nicodemus was not saved, nor did Nicodemus know God's plan of salvation, which was so clearly revealed and articulated in the Old Testament. How, friends, are the souls of men saved from hell? How is spiritual salvation given to men? Shall we know? You must be born again is the answer. Jesus tells that to Nicodemus very clearly in AD 30 at his first ministry Passover. Jesus shows up at the temple in Jerusalem with zeal for his father's house, which causes him to make a scourge of cords and drive out the sellers of oxen and sheep along with their animals and overturn the tables of the money changers, after which Jesus performs many signs and miracles. And he causes the crowds of people in Jerusalem to like what he's doing. Jesus' ministry was then a threat to the Pharisees and the Jewish religious elite because worship in the temple was big business for them. And they had an interest to protect because Jesus was now making friends with the people. And so they send Nicodemus to confront Jesus. But it was Jesus who confronted Nicodemus with the truth about the sovereignty of God in salvation, giving to the premier salvation authority in Israel the premier salvation analogy, you must be born again, sir. You must be born again. Not only does Jesus confront Nicodemus with one-sided, monergistic, God-given, grace-driven, Calvinistic salvation. Jesus goes further by rebuking Nicodemus' failed authority and effectively telling him, you are not a child of God. Jesus' words are intended to crush Nicodemus' pride 
the pride that had filled his soul for years. To which we all say, this is an evangelistic encounter. I don't get it, Jesus. Where's the love, man? Where's the love for this guy? And yet, how does the Apostle John respond to Jesus' rebuke and instruction of Nicodemus in John 3.16? The Apostle John responds to this event, confrontational evangelistic encounter by declaring that what you just saw, friends, is the love of God from Jesus to Nicodemus in rebuke and in explaining the premier salvation analogy. Is that what you see in this conversation? Do you see in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 3 the love of God? To set the context of John 3, 16, let's read Jesus' conversation again. His, his conversation is rebuke of Nicodemus now. And let's begin to consider how on earth the Apostle John can package his 316 10-word summary statement into the theme of the love of God after this evangelistic confrontation. John writes in chapter 3, verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him, right? Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I'm saying to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. And so is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you won't even believe the simplicity of those things, how will you believe if I begin to tell you heavenly things? You know what? Let's give this a shot. Let me tell you some heavenly things. Verse 13, and no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That's me. I'm God. I came down from heaven. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. You see, you should have known your Old Testament history. The purpose of that story, that illustration in Moses, was so that whoever believes will in the Son of Man who is lifted up, have eternal life. That's the end of the story. Jesus doesn't speak another word past John 3.15. To confront Nicodemus, Jesus highlighted the sovereignty of God and salvation. He affirmed the authority of the Old Testament Scriptures. He disputed and instructed and rebuked and crushed Nicodemus' heart. How shall we respond to the story? How does the Apostle John respond to the story? How do you respond to a story that is so soul-crushing in its encounter? You respond in the love of God. That's what the Apostle John does. He looks at this story, this evangelistic encounter, and says, that right there, friends, that's the love of God. Nicodemus just got one of the top five biggest spiritual spankings that anyone has ever received. 
And yet the Apostle John erupts with the greatest verse in the Bible built on the foundation of the love of God. Is that what you see in John 3, 1 through 15 and at verse 16, the love of God? Is it the case that this spiritual authority gets a spiritual spanking and the crowd is supposed to erupt and go wild with joy? Is love what you see? Friend, you must see the love of God here because the love of God is all over this text. The love of God for us believers is here. The Apostle John sees the love of God very clearly in Jesus' evangelistic confrontation with Nicodemus. And as a result of what he recorded, John powerfully proclaims in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that the one believing in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And with these ten words, the Apostle John perfectly recaptures Jesus' presentation of the gospel to Nicodemus and packages it for global, eternal distribution. Turning your Bibles to Luke 9, 51. Luke 9, 51. I want to show you briefly that the Apostle John, who came to be known as the Apostle of Love, is the best man to make this most glorious eruption and declaration in John 3, 16. This passage is loaded with contrasts, and one of the greatest contrasts in the text is found in the use of the word world by a former racist like the Apostle John. John was a devout Jew who held on to his heritage and ethnicity tightly, just like the Apostle Paul. Both men were rabid racists. For them, salvation belonged to the Jews alone, and all the rest of the Gentile world was to be damned. John 3.16 proves the power of grace-driven, Holy Spirit-given, born-again salvation to change a man, a racist, from the inside out. D.A. Carson says, it is atypical for John to speak of God's love for the world, but this truth is therefore made to stand out all the more wonderful. The Jews were familiar with the truth that God loved the children of Israel. Here at John 3.16, God's love is not restricted by race. You're at Luke 9.51, where Luke records Jesus' rebuke of the Apostle John. Why would Jesus need to rebuke John? Because John was a racist. He thought the worst of other people based on the color of their skin and the heritage in their blood. Luke reports Jesus' rebuke of John by saying, Now it happened that when the days for him to be taken up were soon to be fulfilled, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him. That's Jesus did this. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for Jesus. But they did not receive him because he was journeying with his face set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, that the Samaritans were themselves racist, they said, Lord, let us prove our racism. Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume these wicked sinners? But he turned, Jesus did, and he rebuked them. Jesus rebuked John. Turn back in your Bibles to John chapter 1, verse 12, John 1, 12. The apostle John, now writing in his 80s, his gospel, he had come to love the discipline of Jesus because discipline, friends, is love. When you think about John 3, 1 through 15, I hope one word that doesn't escape your grasp and as much as you see the love of God is the discipline of God. Discipline is love. I don't know if you can see this right now, even in the world in which we live. Our world suffers from parents' refusal to discipline their rebellious children. Transgender men are men who love their sin and have never been told, no, that's wrong. They've never received discipline. 
You, you see, friends, it is the grace of God for sinners to receive rebuke and to be told no, to be told it's not okay to do that, to be told you're wrong. If you've never been rebuked by God, you're cursed. You would hope to be rebuked by God and told no. Jesus knows well, or sorry, John knows well, that even though Jesus is rebuking and instructing Nicodemus in John 3 at Passover in 80:30, that Jesus is showing Nicodemus love by correcting his failed understanding of soteriology, correcting his failed understanding of salvation, correcting his pride, correcting his unrighteousness. Better still is this. Jesus' discipline and monergistic salvation of John brought the end of John's racism. Where once John hated all non-Jews, now he pens the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to John, some 50 years later, his hatred was all gone. He knows that the love of God, seen in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, secures salvation and eternal life for people of every tribe, tongue, and nation in the world. You see, this text is not telling you that John is a universalist. The text in John 3.16 is telling you that John is an anti-racist. That's what it's telling you. He doesn't believe that Jesus' death saves every person on the earth without exception. John knows Jesus' death saves all kinds of people on the earth without distinction. Let me say that again because I don't want you to miss it. John is not a universalist. He's an anti-racist. He doesn't believe that Jesus' death saves every person on the earth without exception. He believes and he knows Jesus' death saves all kinds of people on the earth without distinction. Look at what John says in his prologue in John 1.12. He says, even Israel did not receive Jesus' message, but salvation was thrown into the hearts of a few, because verse 12, but as many as received him, to them Jesus gave the right to become passively children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born spiritually, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man but of God, the end of racism, the end of ethnic exclusivity. The gospel, according to Jesus, shatters racism, human determinism, and every form of synergism. Salvation happens by the grace of God alone. No one is worthy to receive it. No one even wanted his salvation. It is the case, however, that by the grace of God's choice, because of his great love, he causes salvation to erupt in the hearts of all kinds of people. Get that? All kinds of people in the world. Turn back in your Bibles to John 3.16. John 3.16, friends, puts an end to racism, not a beginning to universalism. John 3.16 puts an end to racism, not a beginning to universalism, which is another reason to understand John 3.16 was penned by a former racist, the Apostle John who knows he was a racist sinner saved by the grace of God alone. Not saved by his race or his ethnicity or his heritage or his blood. John was saved by the will of God. God's love is great because it is both personal and impartial. God is not biased against you because of your skin color, height, or because you drink coffee. <laughs> the glory of God's love is that he saves people across the face of the whole world, regardless of who they are, where they're from, and what they've done. That's good news for you sinners in this room. He saves you regardless of who you are, where you're from, and what you've done. But that doesn't mean that Jesus died to pay for the sins of every single person in the world. That is not what John 3.16 is saying to us. 
The love of God is not universalism. Everyone will be saved and there is no hell. That's not the love of God. Nor does the love of God make a general salvation possible for every single person in the world, which only gets applied to those who are smart enough to choose to accept it. That's not the love of God either, to make us a possible salvation. Rather, the love of God gives a special personal salvation to all kinds of people without distinction, which God personally delivers to all those whom by grace He has chosen to save from eternity past. God's love goes to all kinds of people, and for that, you need to say with me, praise God. Not, all, not because all people will be saved, but because all kinds of people will be saved. Do you get that? Not because all people will be saved, but because all kinds of people will be saved. The rich and the poor, the smart and the stupid, drivers of Toyotas and Audis and even GMCs. God will save you in your own three-piece Nordstrom suit or your Kirkland signature t-shirt and shorts. Friends, this is the greatest of the love of God that causes John to erupt with joy and share. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that the one believing in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do you know this about the love of God? Brothers and sisters, do you know that literally billions of people do not understand the meaning of John 3.16? Do you understand that billions of people have twisted the Scripture and found in it a fake Jesus, a works-based salvation, and a non-judgmental love of God that just chooses to save everyone? John MacArthur says John 3.16 is undoubtedly the most familiar and beloved verse in, the, in all of Scripture. Yet its very familiarity can cause the profound truth it contains to be overlooked. R.C. Sproul says, not only is this undoubtedly the best-known verse in the New Testament, it's probably the most distorted verse as well. Sproul says, he asked the question, why, you would say? He says, it's because people who love the apparent universality of this verse hate the undeniable particularity of it. He says, Sproul does, some people draw from this text a doctrine of universal salvation. They believe it teaches that God loves the whole world so much He saves everyone. But clearly, that's not what the text says. Sproul says that a contemporary rendition of this verse by most all modern evangelicals would read as follows, quote, God so loved the world that He gave His Son in order to save everyone in the world. Friends, that is horrible theology. It is not true. Friends, is, is this your view of John 3.16? This is a distorted view of the gospel according to Jesus. Pastor Mike Riccardi at Grace Community Church says the following quote, Too often, proponents of a universal atonement, a universal salvation, they throw out proof texts that contain the words all or world and then consider the matter on salvation to be closed. But that kind of approach is just not helpful because it fails to read these texts in their immediate context as well as the broader context of the rest of Scripture. Too often, says Riccardi, what is claimed to be a plain reading of Scripture is nothing more than a superficial reading of Scripture. Universal salvation is just that. If that's what you read in John 3.16, you are reading into the text a very superficial understanding, very superficial reading of that text. It's superficial because it's out of context. The Apostle John removes any possibility of a universal salvation in John 3.16, the verse itself, in the word perish. 
But he goes much further. If we would just continue reading John 3, 17 and 18, where John says, For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him, i.e., all are going to hell. Verse 18, He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already and is going to hell because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Where's the universalism in those verses? The joy of John 3.16 is quickly balanced, you see, in the reality of John 3.18, as well as the, verse, the word perish in 3.16, which declares that all men are born judged by God and are destined to perish in hell forever for failure to believe. There is no universal salvation, only universal condemnation in John 3.16 through 18. All men are born condemned to hell and must be born again to have eternal life. Doesn't that understanding fit the context all the way back to chapter 3, verse 1 through 15? How can proponents of a universal salvation miss this fact? How can they not see the word perish in John 3, 16? Worse still, why would they choose to dismiss the word perish, let alone verse 18? You see... Friends, the glory and splendor of the gospel is not that Jesus saves everyone, it's that Jesus chooses to save anyone. Say it again. The glory and splendor of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that Jesus' blood saves everyone, it's that Jesus chooses to save any one of us. That's the good news. Jesus is a Savior. He does saving work. That's the love of God toward rebels like us. And the demand on your life when you know that is believe. Brothers and sisters, if there is any text to dig into and make sure that we have a proper understanding of the author's intended meaning, it is John's summary of the gospel according to Jesus at John 3.16. Let's dig into the text and make certain that you understand the glory of the love of God given in born-again salvation. God here is the Greek noun theos. Again, Jesus does not speak of His Father as theos ever, and so this must be John's thought. As he brings Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus to a close, John was thinking about the character of Theos, the character of God, specifically that God is loving. The love of God is on his mind. Love is the Greek verb agapao, which is the greatest type of love spoken of in Koine Greek. Phileo is brotherly love. Eros is erotic love. While agape love is unconditional love. Love that doesn't seek its own. It's not a quid pro quo love. Love that is, agape love is love that is constantly in action for the object of his affection. I, I'm very mindful of my own love. How far, how, how far too often I love only when I am loved. That's not the love of God, is it? What about you? Do you have that same problem that I have with your love? You, you kind of set up a little quid pro quo love. You know, I'll love but I've got to get something back for that. There's got to be a little parallel there. You see, God doesn't do that ever. Turn your Bibles to 1 John 4, 7. 1 John 4, 7. Steve Lawson says that, agape, that the agape love of God is unconditional. It's not based upon the merit of the one being loved. He says the love of God rises from within God Himself because God has chosen to love. He is love. He must love. Love is what He does. Lawson says, he chose to love the ungodly. He says it's, out, it's an out-of-this-world love, 
unlike any love that this world has ever seen. That's the love of God. Steve Lawson goes on to say, the nature of God's love for the world is not simply a matter of his feelings. It's not a mushy or sentimental love. God loved by choosing to sacrifice his son to die for wretched sinners. It is the very nature of God's love to sacrificially give to rescue those under his wrath because true love, says Lawson, does not seek to take from others but gives to them. D.A. Carson says, the Greek construction of John 3.16 emphasizes the intensity of the love. Specifically, as William Hendrickson notes, the Greek word hautos, translated so, God so loved the world, speaks of an infinite degree of God's love in a transcendently glorious manner. How can our finite minds begin to quantify and qualify the exceedingly abundant, beyond all we can ask or think, love of our Creator God. You're in John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, where after writing his gospel accounts of Jesus' life, the Apostle John wrote three letters to believers in which he further explains the nature and character of the love of God and the salvation that we have received from Him. Specifically, John says in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction of the wrath of God for our sins. Propitiation means just that. It means that the wrath of God was actually satisfied against your sins in the death of Jesus Christ. God's love is best seen in the fact that Jesus received on the cross the punishment from God due against all the sins of all of those who would ever believe in Him. No more, no less. Jesus did not die to pay for the sins of those who reject Him. Couldn't be the case. Couldn't be the case because the salvation that Jesus secured and the atonement He provided on the cross finishes what it started. How horrible to think that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God against Adolf Hitler, for instance. But Jesus somehow failed to deliver to Adolf Hitler the salvation that he secured, and now Adolf Hitler burns in hell. Well, that's a good question for you to think on. Let's ask you the question. Did Jesus die to pay for Adolf Hitler's sins? Where is Adolf Hitler? Do you know? If you say... Jesus died to pay for Adolf Hitler's sins. If you say yes, like a good universalist must, then you need to explain why Hitler is in hell. You need to explain why one drop of God's love seen in Jesus' blood was wasted on a salvation that could not be delivered and fulfilled. And you can't tell me, look, Oliver, Hitler's free will to reject salvation matters more than God's free will to give salvation. Can't say that to me. I'm not going to listen to that. God has saved a whole bunch of people who didn't want His salvation, including every one of y'all who's saved in this room. If you say, no, Jesus did not die for Hitler's sins, like a good Calvinist would, you need to explain the special saving love of God in contrast with the general love of God. That's what I'd like to do with you next. 
explain the special saving love of God in contrast with the general love of God. To do that, I'd ask you to turn back to John 3.16. On May 6th, earlier this year, Charles III and Camilla were crowned king and queen of the United Kingdom. That's good news. Did you hear the good news? It's very likely that you heard the general good news that the king, that England has a new king. And so we say congratulations to England. Good luck with that king. However, it's very unlikely that you received the special good news that you were invited to celebrate and attend the coronation. No offense to you personally, but King Charles III and Camilla, they don't know you and didn't have a concern in the world of not inviting you to be at the coronation in person. However, they were happy to share their good news with you in a general way, but not in a special way, a a come-see-us-in-person way of invitation. Of course, you probably had neither the desire nor the means to go to the coronation, and so you were here in Spokane on May 6, 2023, and you missed the grand and glorious coronation party of King Charles III and Camilla. What's the point of the illustration? Just like you get to choose who gets a special invitation to your birthday party, so too God gets to decide who will receive a special invitation to His eternal party in glory in heaven forever. You see, friend, just as you know the names of the guests that will attend your wedding, so too God knows the names of the guests who will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Just as you will be satisfied to make public the general information regarding your coronation as king and queen of Spokane, so too God is satisfied to generally inform all mankind of His perfect plan to save only those who believe that Jesus is both Lord and Savior. Friends, the general love of God is clearly seen in the warmth of the sun, the cool of the evening breeze, the reflected light of the full moon, and the early morning song of the sparrow. Creation is declaring the general love and glory of God for all men who are made in God's image and likeness. We all get to eat mangoes from trees, eat raspberries from bushes, drink tea from tea leaves, but the special love of God is required for entrance into heaven. The special love of God is required for entrance into heaven. You can't take the general love of God and presume on God and go walk into heaven of your own accord. You must receive the special love of God for entrance into heaven. Only the special love of God will make a man born again. It is the special love of God that causes men to know and to declare, Jesus died to pay for my sins. That's a special love of God statement. You're in John 3.16, where I need to ask you, what love of God does John have in mind here? What love of God does John have in mind here? General love or special love? Which is it, friend? You need to decide that question if you're going to make sense of this passage at all. Is this the greatest love that God has or is this the general love that God has? What love is in the text? Pastor Mike Riccardi is convinced the love of God in John 3.16 is special and not general. He says, it is an unmistakable mark of this divine special love that it, is determ- that it is the determined purpose to be brought to fruition, which is to say, if God wants to save, nothing can stop His love from saving. Riccardi further says, Almighty God is not a frustrated lover. 
His love is always efficacious. His love always secures its desired end. What do you believe about the love of God? Can you see that the love of God must be understood in both a general sense and a special sense? Can you see that no human being has the ability to enjoy God's special love without God's personal invitation? Can you see that God's special love is efficacious, which is a fancy way of saying it's always accomplishing what it desires to do? That's the special love of God. He always accomplishes what He wants to do. If He has His mind set on a particular group of people from eternity past to deliver them from their sins, is He going to fail at accomplishing deliverance of their sins to those people? Not a chance. He's a deliverer. He's a savior. He's a redeemer. He'll make the whole thing happen. That's the size and greatness of the love of our God. It is only by accurately understanding the glory, power, and intent of the love of God that we can next consider the extent of the love of God as we consider the word world in our text. John erupts with this declaration in 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that the one believing in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And the question next becomes, what about the word world or cosmos in the Greek Doesn't the use of the word world mean every person who ever lived on the face of the earth? Someone is saying in their heart right now, Pastor Oliver, don't even begin to tell me that world is anything less than everyone who ever lived. Don't do that. God loves everyone born into this world. Don't tell me otherwise. I would ask, friend, is that you? Will you please allow me to correct your understanding and your misunderstanding of the word world? I will concede to you that you are right in a general sense. God loves all of those who bear His image and likeness in a general sense. You know this. I know this. We know this collectively. God is sustaining the lives of wicked people in our community right now. They're not sustaining their own lives. God is doing that. That's His general love for them. He gives them oxygen in their lungs. He causes their hearts to beat. He doesn't kill them immediately because of their rebellion to Him, which proves that God is long-suffering and patient toward all men. Can you think of a few people in our world today that God is demonstrating His general love for them and His patience and His long-suffering because of the wickedness of their personal sin committed against God? That their minds cognitively continue to work. They continue to use their mouth to spew vile, filthy, disgusting things into this world. And yet God is allowing them in patience and grace and long-suffering to do these things with His image, with His likeness, backing them up, sustaining them. That is the general love of God. I concede that. But it is only the general love of God. And it is the general love of God that He has for the world. You're you're right. That, That would be correct. But you need to understand in the Gospel of John alone, the word world has at least seven different meanings, all determined by context. When we consider the explicit born-again salvation context of John 3.16, how can you possibly tell me that God's greatest love, His special love that causes a man to be born again by the Spirit of God and to love and obey Jesus is given by God to every single person in the world? That's absurd. That's ridiculous. To think that right now, some of those people that I just had on your mind a second ago, and I won't name them, I've said the names before, you know the names, to think that those people right now 
have been their sin has been purchased by Jesus already on the cross 2,000 years ago? That's an absurd thought. That thought makes a mockery of second spiritual birth. It's a thought that demands the non-existence of hell or the admission that Jesus might be a Savior, but the concession that if he's, if, if he's modestly a Savior, in that arrangement, he's not a Redeemer. He's not a Redeemer. Turn your Bibles to John 8, 28. Friend, is this what you believe about salvation? Is this what you believe about the love of God? Jesus made a cake of salvation, but he won't cut and plate the cake and deliver it to your spiritually starving soul. Evidently, you need to cut the cake of salvation and serve yourself. Is that what you believe? Is that how salvation works? Is this your understanding of the love of God? You believe that the love of God works like a farm animal feed trough where you dump the food into the trough and holler, come and get it. And only the fattest and fattest, fastest and most aggressive pigs race to that feed trough and get the food first. Is that how salvation works? Is that who we are? Where can you create for me the obligation to believe that world here in John 3.16 means all men without exception? What would cause you to argue that God's greatest love, His greatest love, His greatest love is God's general love for every person who ever lived? That's His greatest love? Is God's greatest love His general love for everyone who ever lived or His, his special love? which causes men to be spiritually born again, is that his greatest love that John is thinking about interrupting with in John 3.16? You know the answer. God's greatest love is his special love that causes men to be born again over the top of their unbelief. What this means, brothers and sisters, is that love in John 3.16 is qualifying the word world. You will understand the word world based on the decision that you came to earlier with the word love. If you say that the love of God is God's general love for all men, then world must be general as well. However, if you say the love of God is God's special, saving love, like the love that Jesus just described in John 3, 13 through 15, then world must be restricted and take on a representative sense. World must take on a representative sense in John 3.16. I'm certain that you are familiar with the representative sense of the word world. Before you go pushing back too far against me on what I just said to you about the word world and its representative nature, think about it. In fact, I'll give you an illustration. Your friends who love cycling might have said to you this past week, the whole world has been tuned into the Tour de France since July 1st. Where have you been, man? However, it's just not true that the whole world has been watching the Tour de France. But you'd never rebuke or correct your cycling friend by telling him, listen, man, there are 8 billion people on the face of the earth and only 42 million of them are watching your fancy men in tights Tour de France. Stop using the word world to describe a sport that's only of interest to 0.5% of the world's population. Stop it. You're in John 8:25, where Jesus is going to use the word world to speak about a number of people smaller than 0.5% of the world's population. Is Jesus wrong here? Let's see, let's see how Jesus does this. Jesus is confronting more of Nicodemus' good buddies, the Pharisees, where John reports in John 8:25, so they were saying to Jesus, who are you? 
Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I am saying to the world. Question. Did Jesus say these things to every single person on the face of the planet individually, or is Jesus trusting that his audience understands world in a representative sense? Clearly, Jesus expects his audience to understand the regular representative use of the word world. With that, turn back in your Bibles to John 3.16. Pastor Mike Riccardi says, nothing in John 3.16 demands that world be interpreted to mean every person who ever lived in the world without exception. In fact, there is good reason to understand it as people throughout the world without distinction. People throughout the world without distinction. John MacArthur says, world is a non-specific term for humanity in a general sense. The statement in verse 17 that the world might be saved through him proves that it does not mean everyone who has ever lived, since all will not be saved. MacArthur says verse 16 clearly cannot be teaching universal salvation, since the context promises that unbelievers will perish in eternal judgment. You see this in verses 16, 17, and 18. Friends, world in John 3.16 is representative, not comprehensive. It is general, not exhaustive. It signifies all kinds of people without distinction, not every single person without exception. Mike Riccardi expresses more of our frustration that we would have with this universalistic understanding of the atonement when he says, quote, I continue to struggle with how it can be an act of the love of God to the reprobate sinner who will never be saved to send Christ into the world to bring eternal life to all of those who are the believing ones. The reprobate, by definition, are those who will never believe. How is that the love of God for unbelievers who are perishing? More than that, says Riccardi, they are those to whom God has chosen never to grant the gift of saving faith, because in His inscrutable wisdom, He has chosen not to save them. And so we ask, how is this loving to unbelievers if they are not part of God's salvation picture? Brothers and sisters, the greatness of the love of God is not knowing His general love to every person in the world. The greatness of the love of God is knowing His special saving love given to all kinds of people without distinction. That God is a God of love where there is no racism with Him. There's no partiality with Him. He's not playing favorites. There's no payment required for this salvation. You can't work for it. There are no works to do. You simply must believe what He said. God's greatest love is seen in the sacrifice of His Son, whose death secured salvation for all of those God elected for salvation from before the foundation of the world. Paul says in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, that was when Christ died for us. Much more then, says Paul, having now been justified by His blood in death on the cross, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him, the wrath of God that was coming on us, but He took it for us in our place. For if while we were His enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son on that cross at Calvary, much more, having been reconciled through His death, we shall be saved because Jesus is alive and living. 
we really want to understand the love of God, we will do well to allow the intent of God's giving love to inform the extent of God's saving love. I'll say that again for you. If we really want to understand the love of God, we will do well to allow the intent of God's giving love to inform the extent of God's saving love. Or you might say it this way, studying the purposes of God's love explains the purchase of God's love. Studying the purpose of God's love explains the purchase of God's love. You'll know the number of the people saved if you first know the price of their salvation. Extent, the number of people, is informed by intent. What was the cross of Christ designed to accomplish? Our God demands that we study the intent of His giving love exceptionally well as we see the price of our salvation meant the giving of the Son over to crucifixions at the hands of the Jews and the Romans. How much glory is in, friends, that old rugged cross? What was the eternal intent of God the Father in sending His Son to die on a cross for sinners? Did Jesus die to make salvation a resistible possibility or a deliverable reality? Oh, I like that question. I'm going to say it to you again. Did Jesus die to make salvation a resistible possibility or a deliverable reality? Is Jesus simply a Savior who left the salvation decision to you? Or is Jesus a Redeemer who must rescue your wretched soul from the slave market of sin over the top of your dead free will? How does the cross of Christ display the full glory and love of God? In our text today, John exclaims two glories of God's love that stress the sacrifice of His Son to secure salvation. John exclaims two glories of God's love that stress the sacrifice of His Son to secure salvation. John revels in two triumphs of the love of God that teach the suffering and simplicity of entrance into eternal life. So what two triumphs of God's love stress the sacrifice of the Son and entrance into eternal life? We see in John 3.16b, the first of two triumphs of God's love. Number one, God's love is giving. God's love is giving. The first of two triumphs of God's love. Number one, God's love is giving. John 3.16b. The second of two triumphs of God's love is in verse 16c where we see God's love is saving. The second of two triumphs of God's love is, number two, God's love is saving. God's love is giving, number one. God's love is saving, number two. These two triumphs of God's love in John 3.16. Brothers and sisters, with the short remainder of our time, we must highlight the cross of Jesus Christ. I need you to understand the greatness of the love of God is known by the infinite value of the gift that He has given. Our God spared no expense to rescue and redeem us out of the slave market of sin into which we were born. Our spiritual second birth was made conceivable by the inconceivable death of the Son of God. God gave His one and only unique Son because only through this one, this way, this sacrifice would God's immutable plans stand victorious, triumphant, and the glory of God would be revealed and received to Him and to Him alone. Let's look then at the first of two triumphs of God's love, saving the second for next week. The first of two triumphs of God's love is number one in your notes at John 3.16b, God's love is giving. God's love is giving. We will do God's love is saving next week. For now, it'll be well enough if we do God's love is giving. 
1937, John Griffin was a young family man. He worked on a railroad at a bridge that crossed over the mighty Mississippi River. His daily job was to raise the bridge for safe passage of ships traveling under the bridge and to lower the bridge for the trains traveling on top of the bridge. One day in 1937, he brought his eight-year-old son to work with him to show him how the, the speed of the trains and the size of the ships and the great responsibility given to his father by the railroad to ensure the safety of so many travelers over, the, over and around the Mississippi. Just before lunch, John raised the bridge for several steamboats to safely head south. With the bridge up, John took Greg for lunch on the observation deck to catch a better view of the river and the sailing ships, and far too quickly the lunch hour had passed, which only came to John's attention because of the long, shrieking whistle of the Memphis Express due to cross the bridge at 1.07 p.m. Leaping to his feet, John told Greg, stay here, and raced away to the control room to lower the bridge for the 400 passengers on the Memphis Express to cross the mighty Mississippi safely. John looked up and down the river for boats, all clear. But when he looked down under the bridge, to his horror, he saw that Greg had not obeyed his command to stay here. And in a panic to find his father, Greg had fallen into the massive gearbox required to lower the bridge, and his leg was stuck in the gears. The shrieking whistle of the Memphis Express sounded again. Now it was only seconds away. What must John do? What must John do? With tears in his eyes, John buried his aching head into his left arm. With his right hand, he pushed the lever and lowered the bridge. As the train passed by safely, not one passenger gave notice to the father in the control room who had sacrificed his only son to save them. I would hope that your heart is softened by the extreme emotional content of this true story. And while your mind is attentive to the tragedy of death, I want you to think with me about the differences and the contrast that exists between the death of eight-year-old Greg Griffith and the 33-year-old Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross 2,000 years ago. Was Jesus' death a workplace accident? Was Jesus' death the result of a panicked response to separation from the Father? Did Jesus accidentally fall onto the cross, or did He choose to die there? In contrast with young Greg, how long had Jesus known about His pending death on the cross? In contrast to John, how long had the Father known that His Son Jesus' death was fit to save many? How many lives were saved physically by the death of Greg? How many lives were saved eternally by the death of Jesus Christ? Was the father forced to give his son as a ransom for the world the way that John was forced to give Greg for the salvation of 400? Was the father's giving of the son a response to trouble or a well-thought-out intentional rescue? You know, the story says that as the train passed by, John beat against the control room window while shouting, what's wrong with you people? Don't you care? I sacrificed my son for you. Friends, do you think that our Father in heaven is beating against the clouds in agony, shouting down to the world right now, don't you care? I sacrificed my son for you. Do you believe that? Do you think that's happening? I know this. Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. And I just can't imagine... Our God, pounding on clouds and shouting down from heaven, what's wrong with you people? Don't you care? Because God knows exactly what's wrong with every single one of you. He made us. 
He's watching us in all of our sinfulness. We were born in sin and trespass. And the eternal plan of our Father in heaven was to send His Son on a glorious mission to seek and to save those who were lost. Before the foundation of the world, God knew the names of all of those He would bring into His holy presence to spend eternity forever with Him in heaven. The biggest problem came in the plan at creation, just after the moments of creation, the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. How big is this problem for God? It was a problem. But how big is this problem for God? Did God not perceive this, know this, plan for this? Did He not know what His creation would do? Was God making AI and AI was going to take over the world and defeat God? He's not a frustrated creator. Through their sin, that's Adam and Eve, all men are born into sin, rebellion to God and unrighteousness. And herein lies God's greatest problem. How big a problem is this for God? Think about this. Here's his problem. How can God make the unrighteous to be righteous? He knows their names, our names. He knows that we're unrighteous. How can he make us righteous? How can the God of the universe change crimson-stained sinners and make them cleansed and washed as white as snow? How can sinners be saved? How can God be both just, punishing the unrighteous, and, the same, and at the same time, the gracious justifier who gives eternal life to whomever he chooses? The answer, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Only begotten does not mean that Jesus was a created being. The Greek word is monogenes, which means one and only or unique. Monogenes is only ever used by the Apostle John, never Jesus. Jesus doesn't call himself God's unique son. Turn your Bibles to John 6.35. Steve Lawson says, only begotten means that Jesus is a son like no other son had existed. He is in a class by himself. This fact that Jesus is God's only son exponentially heightens the demonstration of the Father's love. We see the Father's love in the fact that he gave this son, this perfect son, Gave is the Greek verb didomai, which means to give, grant, deliver, or commit. The father committed the son to death in order to ransom all of his elect chosen children out of the slavery to sin in which they were born. God delivered Jesus over to the execution of the Romans and the Jews. Jesus' death was the plan to provide a perfect redemption, a perfect redemption, but only for those whose names God has known from eternity past. The father did not give the son to save everyone. The Father's giving Jesus as a sacrifice to the world directly corresponds to the number of sheep the Father has given to the Son. How many is that? Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I have said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Friends, this is the love of God. He knows us by name and sent His Son to rescue us from darkness, redeeming us from the slave market of sin and giving, his own, giving us His own righteousness. Jesus is the one who holds us fast. Turn in your Bibles to Acts 2.22. I want you to see the giving of the Father is always highly intentional, extremely particular, and exceptionally relational and personal. 
We see this both in His giving of the Son and His giving of the elect to the Son so that the Son will unquestionably redeem, save, and glorify them with Him in heaven forever. William Hendrickson says the verb He gave must be taken in the sense of He gave unto death as an offering for sin. All the emphasis in the text is on the astounding greatness of the gift in John 3.16. Peter preaches the greatness of the gift and the sovereignty of God and His plan and purpose in saving, giving salvation through the Son in Acts 2.22. Peter says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in death's power. As we close our time, I want you to turn to Isaiah 53. Our God willingly endured the horror and suffering of crucifixion to secure our rescue and redemption from the slave market of sin as the capstone event of a 33-year life of perfection. Moreover, on the cross, Jesus endured the wrath of God against all the sins of all the elect that God had chosen to believe from before time. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Believers will not suffer the wrath of God for their sins. Unbelievers will suffer the full wrath of God. Inevitably, someone will ask, why can't God punish me for my own sins and still allow me to get into heaven? Why can't I pay God off? Why can't I be given the chance to manufacture my own righteousness? Well, first I would tell you, righteousness must happen on God's terms, not yours, according to His plan. God has designed one act of righteousness. Do you know what it is? One act of righteousness for you to perform. Believe. Believe in Jesus. Believe God. Believe His Word, just like Abraham did with Isaac in Genesis 22. God won't allow you to pay for one sinful thought, but God delights in crediting righteousness to those who simply obey Him by believing in Him. That's good news. That's simple salvation, and it's truly unbelievable. Simply believing in God can remove a whole lifetime worth of wicked sins that I've committed? Yes, friend, that's exactly what the text says. That's the giving love of God. Second, I would tell you, how wickedly self-righteous are you if you think you can pay God for even one sin? Just like you can't stop yourself from sinning today, you can't stop your own physical death from coming upon you later. How are you going to stop your eternal death, if that's the case? Physical death will be the arresting officer that drags you in before the judge of the universe where you will be judged for your sins, found guilty, and sentenced to hell. Your only hope is to repent for all your sins and believe that Jesus died to pay for your sins. Friend, is this what you believe? I'm telling you today, you must. There is no name given to men, given under heaven by which men must be saved. John's whole gospel is written, as he says in John 20, 31, so that these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I ask you to turn and close our time in Isaiah 53 at verse 10, where the plan of God to redeem his people through the sacrifice of his son was explained to Israel through the prophet Isaiah. This is the gospel according to Jesus, recorded by Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was born. On your own time, read the whole chapter. Do it later today. Friends, this is the love of God for our time now. Look at verse 10. But Yahweh God was pleased to crush Jesus, His Son, putting Him to grief. 
If you would place his soul as a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide for him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong. Because he was poured out, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, and yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. This is the love of God for all who believe. Friend, is that you? Do you believe Jesus is God, that he died to pay for sins? Let me ask you, did Jesus die to pay for your sins? There are only four proper responses to the giving love of God, love, Belief, obedience, and worship, perhaps worship at this moment is expressed best in the question of wonder. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Father in heaven, I thank you for this time with my brothers and sisters this morning. And now we look to sing this song and bring praise to Jesus all the more for his incredible sacrifice. He is your gift of love. We honor you and him now with this song and these words. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.